Well, if you have your Bibles with you or your electronic device, if you open up to Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to be studying from verses 1 through 4. And this is something we had uh, shared last Wednesday night. And uh, just to give you a quick review so we can get right into uh, what I really want to talk to you about tonight. But we talked about it. We sort of focused on the first verse of Hebrews chapter 2 where we talked about how uh, the writer warned the readers, which are Christian Jews, uh, to pay close attention or to give more attention to the things that they've heard. Uh, and there was something that was so vital about what they heard that if they didn't hear it, if they didn't give the, the proper attention, uh, the danger is that they would slip away or drift away. And uh, we learned that what, the, what they heard was this message of salvation or this great salvation that is found in uh, chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 3. Because the Bible says in Hebrews 1, 2, that God in the last day spoke to us through his son. And in John 14, 24, Jesus says that the words that I teach are not mine, but the father who speaks. And so in verse 3, it says that how can we neglect so great salvation, which was first spoken by the Lord Jesus? And we looked at how Jesus ministry was about this message of salvation. We saw that in uh, Mark 16, 16, where he says that those who believe and are baptized shall be saved. And then Jesus says in Luke chapter 19 and verse 17 or verse 10, where the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. And then he also says in in, uh, Luke chapter 15, where he taught on three parables. Each parable had something to do with something lost. There was the lost sheep the lost coin, and then the lost son. But what those parables have in common is the fact that uh, it it reveals the purpose of Jesus' earthly ministry and God's desire to save those who were lost. So we know that the main issue, the main key here is this salvation. And this is what I want to talk to you about tonight. And we got into a little bit about the importance of hearing and, and the dangers of drifting away. And, you know, when we, I use the analogy of someone being on a boat and uh, the boat drifting away from shore slowly. And it gives a sense that this is something that's done slowly, not suddenly. And I mentioned to you that Christians never experience blowouts. They only experience slow leaks. And one of the major threats of the church today is to slowly drift away. And what happens is that when we slowly drift away, sometimes we, we, by the time we realize it, we're so far away from God that we can't even hear from him. And so we talked about that. And one of the beauty about that is this. When you finally recognize that you've drifted away, it's always good to come on back. Amen. Amen. You can always come back. And so, and then we got into a little bit about the disadvantages of hearing. And, and we didn't get a chance to talk about the advantages of hearing. But I don't want to spend too much time on that. What I want to talk to you tonight about is this wonderful, great salvation. So I want you, while you're still in uh, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3, the writer asked a very important question in verse 3. He says, how shall we neglect so great salvation? Very important question. It is so important that people, and when I say people, I'm talking about both saved and unsaved. But that we must understand that without Christ, we are lost, eternally lost. We need to understand that without Christ, 
that we need to be saved desperately. We need to have this, we, we need salvation so desperately because we will be eternally and completely lost. And it's so important that we understand that this message of salvation is so important because we take it so lightly and we take it for granted. You know, we, we, you know it's like having something of great value and you've had it for so many years, but you don't even think about it anymore. You put it away, you, you, every once in a while you take it out and polish it up or, you know, whatever it is that you do. But then you put it away and then forget about it. And that's how so many of us Christians do. We, we tend to forget who we are. We tend to forget what we have. And we tend to forget that there's so much to be had when it comes to this great salvation. So let's look at, if you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 1. And let's begin there. So when we talk about salvation, we're talking about something that God has given us. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace we are saved through faith, not of ourselves, lest any man should boast. In other words, salvation is God's doing, not man. So in Ephesians chapter 1, we see that God's plan for salvation was always in the works, even in eternity past. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says this, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Verse 5 says, In love he predestined us to be adopted as his son through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 it says this, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in truth. So it was God's plan before the foundation of the world to save us because he saw the condition that we were in. Now, it wasn't that God pre-selected certain individuals for salvation. But what he did was, this is my plan. But according to Ephesians 2.8 it says, for by grace are we saved through faith. In other words, God provided the plan, but it's ultimately up to us to make the decision to receive and be a part of this wonderful plan. <clears throat> so what is the salvation? And, and understand, too, that this is God's desire. Uh, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him, whosoever believeth in him, whosoever believeth in him shall be saved. 1 Timothy 2.4 says it was God's desire that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So we know that this was something that God wanted. Now, what is salvation? Go, uh, if you're still in Hebrews, are you in Ephesians 1? Go back to Hebrews 2. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2. Let me take out my watch so I won't go over time. Once again, in verse 3, it says, How will we escape if we neglect so great salvation? The word salvation is the Greek word soteria. Some scholars believe that it derives from the word soter, which means savior. But the word salvation in the Greek communicates the thought of deliverance, safety, preservation, rescue, 
restoration, soundness, and healing. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, which I quoted earlier, where it says, For by grace are you saved through faith. The word saved is the Greek word sozo, which means to save, deliver, or protect, to heal, to preserve, to do well, to be whole, or to make whole. Now, these are two separate Greek words, but yet they both have similar meanings. So, basically, what the salvation really is, and I want you to go to Romans chapter 8. But salvation is really one very large and generous package of God's blessings. Go to Romans chapter 8. And in verse 32. Are you there? I still hear some pages turning. It says this, verse 32 of Romans 8. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The best gift that God can give man is his son. And if he was willing to give his very best to save us, then he's more than willing to give us everything else that he has. Because everything else is not as good as the Son. Because he's the source of all things. But yet if he's willing to give that, then he's willing to give us everything else. Because he's willing to freely give it to all, to all of us, all things. He didn't say some things. He didn't say a little bit of things. He says all things. Imagine this. Imagine receiving a huge, big, beautifully wrapped package. Then you unwrap it, and you find another beautifully wrapped package. You open that up, and you find another beautifully gift-wrapped package. And you open that up, and you find still another beautifully gift-wrapped package. And you continue on and on until finally you're, you're surrounded with so many beautiful packages, beautifully gift-wrapped. That's what salvation is like. You see, when you open up the gift, for instance, if a person got saved for the first time, he's already enjoying the beautiful package of salvation. But then God is saying, but wait a minute, there's more. And he opens it up. And then he so I sees another gift. He sees eternal life in heaven. And he rejoices over that. And then God says, well, wait a minute, there's still more. And then he unwraps that gift and he finds, oh my goodness. It's the indwelling presence of the Holy Ghost. And he rejoices over that. But then God says, well, wait a minute, there's still more. Then he opens up that gift and he finds out, it's the promises of answered prayers. And he continues on. He opens up another gift. And he sees it's victory over temptations. And he opens up and says, oh my goodness, financial blessings. And he opens up the gift. Do you, are you getting what I'm saying? You see, salvation is just one big package of blessings. Each of those gifts is one aspect of God's salvation. Whether it's healing whether it's, it's prosperity, whether it's, it's, it's deliverance, whether it's 
the indwelling presence of the Holy Ghost, whether it's being more than a conqueror, you name it. And I'm getting ahead of myself here. Salvation is just like many beautifully gift-wrapped packages given to all of us to enjoy. Go to Ephesians chapter 3. There are just so many different parts of salvation. It's like another uh, illustration I want to use where a man who wanted to go to an amusement park full of rides, all these wonderful rides. And he goes there, he purchases tickets, and he goes in and he walks around the park and he sees the ride that he wants to go on. And he he says, I got to go on that ride. So he goes to the attendant and asks, how much is that? How much does it cost to to get in one of these rides? And the attendant looks at him and says, sir, the ticket that you purchased includes all of these rides. In other words, it's all part of the deal. All the rides that are in this park is made available to you because of that one purchase ticket. You see, salvation is a package deal. Everything that God has. He says that he's willing to give freely all things. And all things are part of that package. Look in Ephesians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 8. It says this. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints. Is the grace given. That I should preach among the Gentiles. The unsearchable riches of Christ. When Paul says in Romans 8.32. That God is willing to give freely all things. He was talking about the unsearchable riches of Christ. The word unsearchable in the Greek means past finding out or not to be tracked out. In other words, the idea here is that God's blessings in Christ is too deep to be measured. So if I was to sit here and talk about all the wonderful gifts that God has, there's not enough time in the day to be able to to discuss every one because they're so unsearchable. They're so deep, too deep to, to be measured. But I want you to get the, the, the idea that what God has for us is so, so vast and it's all ours. And you see, this is where we fall short. Because when we, don't, when we take this wonderful gift of salvation for granted, we don't get to enjoy the wonderful blessings that God has with his salvation. We don't get to enjoy all of the wonderful little packages that come with salvation. And we, then we tend to miss out on that. And this is not what God wants. He says he's willing to give freely all things for us to enjoy. Now, let's begin to start unwrapping some of these wonderful gifts tonight. Let's talk about uh, the first gift. If you go with me to Acts chapter 3. Saints, God is not holding back anything from us. He wants us to have it all. Ephesians 1.3 says, Thanks be to God. He says, Because blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. So our resource from this great salvation is inexhaustible and unsearchable. Everything that God has for us is there for the taking. Acts chapter 3. One of the, and now again, I've only picked a few of them because there's so many to 
to choose from. But uh, these are the ones that I thought was some pretty good gifts. Uh, the first one is in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Let me read that to you. It says, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. One of the first gifts that salvation provides us is this. All of our past sins have been completely wiped out. Every last one. The word blotted out means to obliterate, to erase, to smear out. The expression to blot out sins is taken from an ancient practice where the creditors would keep track of all of the debts of their debtors. And whenever the debt was paid, what they would do, they would cancel everything out. All the record of your debt has been completely wiped away. And so you become debt free. And that's where this term comes from. And so when God blotted out your sins, our past sins, he blotted out completely, wiped everything away. Every record, every charge, every accusation has been completely wiped away. And so that's how God forgives us. When he forgives us, he forgets. When he forgets, he cancels everything out. So he doesn't have an archive of your past sins to look back to. He doesn't look to see if there's anything there because he's completely wiped it out. There's nothing to look for. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. When, the prophet, when God spoke to the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 43 and verse 25, he says this, I, even I, am he that blots out thy transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins. He says, I will not recall your sins I will not remind you of your sins. I will not mention your sins. I will not even hold it against you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19 says this, To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. The word impute here in the English word means to take an inventory. And what Paul is saying is this, that God has not taken or will not take inventory of your past sins. Glory to God. How many of you know people who take an inventory of some of your faults, some of your sins? Don't you hate that? But you see, God doesn't do that. He says he canceled it out. I like the way the message translation writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 19. He says that God put the world square with himself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of sins. Man, I'll tell you, to have a fresh start, you know, it's nothing like having a fresh start, a new life. You have nothing to look back, nothing to hold you back, nothing to hang over your head because it's been removed and it's been canceled out. I don't know about you, but I consider that a gift. Colossians 2.14 says this, that God had canceled out the certificate of debt. That means the record of the charges that are made against us. And he has taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Glory to God. Go to Romans 4.8. Hallelujah. 
<coughs> Romans chapter 4 and verse 8. This is Paul who was quoting Ashley out of Psalm 32 verse 2, which were the words of David. And these were the words in verse 8. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And you know, there are so many people today, especially Christians, who carry their past sins like a, like a heavy burden. You know, and what happens is that they carry this with them everywhere they go. And they're filled with self-condemnation and, and they've not forgiven themselves and, and because they're not willing to let it go. They just don't seem to understand that whatever sins we've committed in the past, when we came to Christ, all that has been wiped away. They may have heard it, but it did not sink inside of them. It did not become real to them. And so they're still carrying this weight. And if there's some of you here tonight that are carrying your past sins, I'm telling you right now, let it go. Because God is not holding it against you. If it's been brought under the blood of Jesus, then it's been wiped clean and you have no record. There are no archives collecting of your sins. It's been wiped away. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's talk about the second gift. Go to Job chapter 9. We're opening up the second beautifully wrapped package tonight. Job chapter 9. This next gift is called justification. Oh, I love this word. Glory to God. You know, the question I have is this. How can... And unholy people, ungodly people, sinners, stand before a perfectly holy and a perfectly just God. How can, we, how can someone as sinful be able to stand before a holy God? Job asks a similar question in chapter 9 and in verse 2 he says this. In truth I know that this is so, but how can a man be in right before God or how can a person be declared innocent in God's sight in Psalm 130 in verse 3 a similar question is asked it says if you Lord should mark or keep account of all of my iniquities who could stand how many of you have ever tried to meet or to live up to someone else's high standards wasn't that difficult? How many times have you failed trying to meet someone else's high standards? And if that was difficult, if it was difficult for you to try to live up to someone's high standards, someone who was considered imperfect and sinful and ungodly, then how can we expect, or how difficult do you think it is to live up to a, a holy and a perfectly precious and, and godly and righteous God? Because you see, God demands that we do all things right. Because that's his standard. And imagine a God like this, who holds us to his measuring stick and keeps account of all of our failures. No one on earth would be able to stand before a God who's that godly and that righteous. Amen? So, our problem is not trying to live up to someone else's standards. The problem here is that we've fallen short of God's standard. 
Romans 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Go to Romans chapter 8. Now the fun begins. Now I feel like a little kid unwrapping my gift. You remember those days, right? You know, the word justify, while you're turning to Romans 8, means to render or to show a regard as innocent or to be righteous. Now, this word is a legal term that come out of a courtroom. From a judicial perspective, it means to be acquitted of all charges and declared innocent. From a theological standpoint, it means to be declared righteous. Now, Webster's Dictionary defines justification as to pardon or to clear from guilt or to acquit from all guilt and punishment. It also defines it as to accept as righteous on account of the merits of Christ. So, Romans chapter 8, verse 33, says this. And I love the way it starts out. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Another translation says, who dares to accuse God's people? And it says, no one, because God alone justifies. The phrase, lay anything to the charge, comes from a Greek word, which means to bring a charge against, or to call to account, or to accuse, or to arraign for prosecution. It sort of carries the idea of coming forward with evidence as an accuser in a court case. How many attorneys we have here tonight? Okay. Now, since God alone justifies, then who can bring accusations against us? Now, go to Revelation chapter 12. Now, even though God in this verse declares us as righteous, even though no one can dare bring any accusations against us because God is the one who declares us as righteous and innocent, but yet... Don't you know that there's still people out there who still likes to make accusations? Don't you know that there's still people trying to bring evidence against you? But there's one who is the biggest accuser of all. His name is Satan. And in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10 it says this, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before God day and night. Now we know that we have people in this world that love to accuse Christians. Likes to, you know, make us look bad. But we have some who day and night goes before God trying to make accusations. But I go back to what Romans 8 says. Who dares accuse God's elect? Who dares to lay a charge against us? No one, because it's God and God alone who declares us innocent and righteous. Hallelujah. So I I love the way the Bible paints this picture where God is the righteous judge. Jesus, who is our advocate, is our defense attorney. And Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren, is the prosecutor. Now, 
I don't claim to be an expert on criminal law. But I think I have just a little bit of experience to be able to discuss this. Because I watch a lot of episodes of Law and Order. So I think that qualifies me to share some things about law. So based on the episodes that I've seen, like all prosecutors, in order for them to successfully prosecute and, and to successfully put us the accused away, right? Then he has to have some strong and very solid evidence in order to prove our guilt. Isn't that correct? So, for the believer, there is no evidence <laughs> to hold against us. Because as I mentioned before, God has blotted out all of our sins. So there's nothing to bring before the court because there's nothing to accuse us of. Because everything's been canceled. <laughs> so, if there are not any charges, if there's no accusations that are brought against us, then again, I'm going to use a term that I heard from Law and Order. <laughs> the evidence is inadmissible. <laughs> In the court of God. You see, the word inadmissible, I have to look it up. <laughs> it means not accepted as valid, not to be allowed or forbidden. So if the devil has the nerve to bring an accusation against us in the court of God, it's inadmissible. It is not valid. <laughs> it is not allowed. It has been forbidden. It's an accusation with no evidence. You have no case. So whatever charges are brought against us, it's inadmissible. It's got to be thrown out. Because you see, we were declared not guilty over 2,000 years ago. <laughs> that fact has already been established. But yet the devil is constantly trying to accuse us. But you know, we don't worry about that because that's like coming into a battle with no bullets. That's the devil. He's got a weapon, looks menacing, but he's got no bullets. He's got no ammunition. He's got nothing to fight with. But that is what justification is. It is an act of God whereby he declares the forgiven sinner to be righteous. Now, while we're still on the subject of justification, there are three ways that God could deal with sin. Three options. The first option would be just to condemn all sinners and just be done with it. But that would leave everyone hopeless. The second option is to, is to compromise his righteousness and lower his standards. And then just, you know, and just take us as we are. You know, let bygones be bygones and let's skip over our sins. But if God did that, then who wouldn't be righteous or just? So God chose the third option. He provided the means to forgive sinners and declare them righteous in his sight. Go to Acts chapter 13. But of course, that would come at a very high and considerable price. Acts chapter 13. 
Now remember the word, what the word justified means. It means to be acquitted of all charges and declared innocent. And it's also to be declared as righteous. Acts chapter 13, verse 37 says this. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that though this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe, listen to this, are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the laws of Moses. All things means everything. So in other words, when he says we've been justified by all things, that means now we can stand before God and he looks at us as righteous as though we've never sinned at all. Man, that is powerful. I mean, you can't even imagine. You know, it's very hard for us to look at someone who did us wrong and yet we may forgive them, but yet we cannot help thinking the wrong that they've done. There's always this temptation to think about, mm, I know what you did. But with God, he looks at us as though we've never sinned. He doesn't remember sin because he said, I've forgiven you and I remember your sin no more because I blotted it out. So I can't even imagine that. But with God, he looks at us and he sees righteousness. He sees that our sins have been wiped away. He sees that we have no archives or no record of any sin because he's taken care of it all. So justice, justification before God is more than just forgiveness of sin. So I, I really need you to get this. Let's say, for instance, you have a child. Let's say your son was playing outside. He was playing with a ball. And as he was playing with the ball, he throws the ball and accidentally hits your window and smashes your window. I know what you're going to think. You're probably going to get upset and wring his neck. But after, after you get past the anger, you're eventually going to forgive him, Right? So, but even though you might forgive him, he's still guilty. You can forgive him a hundred times a hundred, but it doesn't change the fact that he broke the window. In other words, you can forgive him, but you can't justify him. When a sinner comes to Christ, God does both. He forgives and he justifies. Hallelujah. See, you know, when, when, when a person commits a crime, he gets caught, gets thrown in jail. Then he's brought before the court. Then the judge sentences him. Then he does several years in, in prison. Then after doing his time, after paying his debt to society, he's released. Now, it's common that when a, a, an ex-con is released from prison, they usually, the first stop is usually a halfway house before he goes into society. And then while he's at a halfway house, he's usually assigned to, uh, uh, what is that, parole? A, parole? a parole officer, right? Probation officer, yes. I guess I didn't see law and order as much as I wanted to. <laughs> so he has to go to a halfway house, and then he has to also regularly see a probation officer. Now, I understand that that has its purpose, but what it, what it really does, it reminds the person of his past sins. You know, everywhere he goes, his crime has always been reminded of. Everywhere he goes, he's being reminded of what he had done. 
Even when he applies for a job and he gets to the part where it says, have you ever been convicted? He's got to not only say yes, but he's got to write down what he did. And the chances are he may not even get a job. So his crime follows him wherever he goes. And wherever he goes, he's considered and looked upon as an ex-con. Justification means that you're just not a forgiven criminal or a forgiven sinner, but that you are righteous. Hallelujah. You see, forgiveness removes the penalty, but justification removes the guilt. Justification is simply an act of God whereby he declares the forgiven sinner righteous or right standing. So to me, justification is a wonderful gift to know that I can stand before a righteous God, knowing that he looks at me through through the blood of Jesus and sees me as someone who's never sinned. A man that has the right to stand and approach God because of his righteousness. It says that God, that Christ became sin for us so that we can become his righteousness. The Bible calls righteousness as a gift. And so we want to relish in that. We want to remind ourselves that the, the, the pain that it took for us to get to that place of justification. Because only God can declare you righteous. Only God that can declare you as innocent from all guilt. And man, I'll tell you, what a freedom to be able to remove all that guilt. Do you remember the first time you accepted the Lord Jesus when he came into your heart? Do you remember the release that you felt, the freedom that you felt? I know, I can, I can remember that. And it was such a wonderful freedom knowing that everything I've ever done. And let, me, and let me just say this. I'm not proud of some of the things I've done. But I thank God that he didn't look at me and feel the same way. He says, I'll take care of that, son. Just come to me. And when you come to me, I will not only make you a forgiven sinner, but I'm going to make you righteous. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Romans 8.33 says, who dares bring a charge against you? No one. It's God and God alone who declares me innocent, who declares me as righteous. And there's no one who has a higher authority than God. He's the one that said, I'm not guilty. He's the one that says, I'm righteous. So praise God. You can't argue with God. Praise the name of Jesus. Do we have time for another gift? Let's talk about the third gift. Let's unwrap another beautifully wrapped gift. Salvation is great because God demonstrates his unconditional love. See, God knew well in advance after he saw Adam and Eve eat that fruit. And he knew that it brought sin into the world. And he knew how it affected all of the world. But see, God had already had a plan. And you see, that was the demonstration of his love right there. Because he could have chosen just to condemn everybody and just be done with it. But he chose that third option. He says, okay, I've got a better idea. Because I love them so much. I want to find another way. I'm going to find someone else to do it. I'm going to have to find somebody else to, to pay the price. I want to find somebody else who's going to do all the work for them. I'm going to find somebody else who's going to take all of the risk and suffer and endure all of the pain. 
because I know that you and I, we couldn't do it. And of course, you know, he knew that one day he himself is going to have to take care of this problem. And see, this is what I love about God. Because he didn't abandon us, because he didn't neglect us, and because he didn't say, you know what, forget them. No, God invested too much in us. The fact that he created us was out of his love. And the fact that he had such a great purpose and a great plan for us. He went through all kinds of work just to, just to put us together and, and put us here on this earth. He's not going to do all that just to quit on us. What do you think? No, he's not. But his plan of salvation truly demonstrates his love. Go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Verse 6 says this. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Look down in verse 8. But God demonstrated his own love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners. While we were still practicing sin. Well, we are still doing all those things that we shouldn't be doing. When we're doing all those dark and nasty things, Christ died for us. Look down in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So there's this demonstration of God's unconditional love that we were while we were helpless, while we were sinners, while we were enemies that never stopped God from deciding, I still gonna, I'm still going to fulfill my plan for you. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know what's best for you, but I do. So I'm going to take the initiative to save you. So to love us unconditionally is to love us in the condition that we were in. Think about that. Hostile, sinful, ungodly. Offensive, rebellious, violators. Some of you can probably find yourself in this category. Fornicators, transgressors, drunkards, strung out, addicted, selfish, proud, arrogant, self-dependent, deceivers, and you fill in the blank. While we were all of that, Christ died for us. And for God to love us unconditionally, he had to love us in the mess that we were in. He had to accept us as we are so that he can change us. So he extends his pure, his holy, and his godly ways and his righteous love towards us. Hallelujah. In our unholy, unrighteous, and impure condition. Paul says that while we were still helpless, ungodly sinners, and enemies of God, he demonstrated Proved his love. Isn't it something that God, who initiated this love in the midst that we were in and brought us in right standing with Himself? And the Bible says that the Holy Ghost has been shed abroad in our hearts, or that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts, which means that we now, who are partakers of the divine nature, which is love, also has, have this ability to do the same. 
Now, can you think of someone who is a drunkard, rebellious, fornicator, proud, arrogant, and so on and so on? In the same way that God demonstrated his love for us in the mess that we were in, God expects us to do the same with one another. And you know, I know some of you have relatives, friends, family members that might be going through stuff and need to be saved, and need salvation, they need deliverance. But sometimes we do all that we can do. And sometimes it's very hard because, you know, we get the same results. And then we, there's this tendency to want to sort of give up and quit. And it's not that we don't love them. It's not that we don't care about them. It's just that there's not much that we can do. Sometimes we just want to write them off and say, you know what, forget you. Sometimes we just get so angry and so just tired of the stuff, the same old stuff. And sometimes we, 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 no matter how many times we try to explain it to them, they just don't seem to get it. But remember when God saved you. And if he can save you, he can save them as well. So I don't know who's, this might be for somebody here tonight. But I just want to tell you tonight, hang in there. Continue to love them through this. Continue to love them through the mess that they're in. In the same way that God also did the same for us. And you see, it's not up to us to save them. It's only up to us to love them and to pray for them. And to believe God to come in and rescue them in the same way that he rescued us. Amen. Amen. Well, I'd like to go on, but I'm going to have to pick up where we left off next Wednesday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Father, I believe, Father God, that you spoke into our hearts tonight. Lord, I thank Father God. I believe, Lord God, that you spoke some words, Father God, that are clear and direct. Father, you give us clear direction, Father God, as to where you want us to go, how you want us to lead, Father God. Father, we thank you tonight, Father God, as you minister to your people, Father, that the words that have been sown into their hearts, Father God, that their hearts will be like good ground so that it can bring forth much fruit. And Father, we thank you, Lord God, that as you minister to them on the way home, Father God, begin to make that word come alive in them, Father, and begin to speak to them and begin to bring clarity and understanding in their lives. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that tonight was a night, Lord God, that you had some wonderful words to say and share with us, Lord, and helping us to understand how wonderful this great salvation is. And Father, we don't want to take it for granted. We don't want to take it lightly, and we certainly don't want to neglect it. But we want to embrace it. We want to receive it. We want to enjoy the wonderful benefits of it. And we want to be able to walk in it successfully. And Lord, we thank you for giving that, choice, uh, that, that ability, Father. And Lord, for this, we thank you and give you all the glory and praise that you so deserve. Thank you for saving us.